Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am your host today, Paige Niedringhaus, and I am joined by one of our regular panelists, Jack Harrington. Hello. And our special guest today is Dillian Magida. Welcome, Dillian. Hello. Welcome. Uh, it's nice to be here. <laughs> nice to have you, Dillian. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. We're very glad to have you. Maybe you could take a minute. I know that you are actually a returning React Roundup guest, but tell people who aren't as familiar with you who you are, what you do, and why you're famous. Okay, why well, am I famous? You've been on a React Roundup. <laughs> yeah, I was here before. It was nice being here before. Um, oh. My name is Dillion. I am currently located in Netherlands and I'm from Nigeria originally. Uh, I'm a developer advocate and a content creator. And I love creating content around my technical career, around web technologies from the front end to the back end. And I also love sharing experiences around my life. Like one very popular um, experience I shared was when I re relocated to the Netherlands. Hmm. I, made a, I made a couple of videos sharing my entire process and many people found it very helpful. So that was very fulfilling. And why am I famous? Well, because I am on the React Roundup for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe that one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was a an article that you wrote pretty recently about CSS properties. For anybody who's listening, we'll link to it in the show notes, but could you give us kind of a rundown of what CSS properties are? Well, the specific CSS property I wrote about was the aspect ratio property. And I'm not sure exactly when this was launched, but I know it was very recent. And mm -hmm. it's a very useful property. I find it very helpful. It's something that I know I'm going to use a lot because the, the problem that this property is trying to solve is to help in automatic sizing of elements. And when you're building responsive layouts in different web applications, one thing you have to do like consistently on different devices is um, resizing, resizing. When the screen is small, you want a smaller size. When the screen is large, you want larger size. So without the aspect ratio property, usually, I mean, there are other ways you can achieve responsiveness without this property. But sometimes this would involve changing the height of an element and yeah. the width of an element. So yeah, you're like, on this screen, you have maybe 100% or you have maybe a fixed pixel value. You have to do it for the width. You have to do it for the height, like that. But with the aspect ratio property, it's just as simple as declaring an aspect ratio. And when you specify a width, the I don't know if it's the browser that does this or CSS that calculates this, but it's we end up determining the height for you based on the ratio that you have provided. So if you specify a ratio of like two to one, then if you give a box a width of 100%, the height is going to be automatically calculated to 50%. So it just makes things automated in that way. And you can have different ratios, 9, 16, 2, 1, 1, 5. You can have floating numbers. So it was a nice property that I came across. And when I got the hang of it, I also decided to share in my own words on my own blog. Nice. There's probably like shims for it. I'm guessing if you don't have support in, on a particular browser, they, they jump in with JavaScript and make it work. <laughs> uh, well, I think the support, I think the only thing it wasn't support on, supported on was Internet Explorer. <laughs> 
was quite then. <laughs> it was quite supported <laughs> on other web platforms. So is this something that you would use in addition to media queries, or is this meant to be uh, kind of a replacement for CSS media queries? I don't think it's a replacement because media queries still has its own usefulness and you cannot use aspect. For example, well, I haven't tried this, but I don't think you can use aspect ratios on things like font sizes and, you know, other, dimen- other kinds of dimensions. So for boxes, elements that are like containers, yes, you can use them there, but media queries will still be very useful when you want to change the font size of something, maybe when you want to change the color of something, maybe when you want to hide an element on a smaller screen, things like that. I don't think, I don't think you can hack your way through aspect ratio for that. Yeah, understanding media queries are still super important, I think. The nice thing is that they're kind of, nowadays, they're also rolled into, like, your material UI and whatever you're using. You know? Yeah. Do you have a, Dillian, do you have a favorite uh, UI toolkit that you use? I'm not really a big fan of toolkits, like pre-made buttons or pre-made colors and all that. But I especially like Tailwind because oh, yeah. it's... With Tailwind, I have the classes and the classes are doing mostly the basic stuff, like maybe an extra pixel or an extra font size. And then I get to really design the UI that I want. Because I think my experience with Bootstrap before wasn't a nice one because I ended up doing so many overwriting and overwriting. And But with Tailwind, once I configure the classes that I want, then it just makes things easy for me to build my own button instead of having to overwrite an existing primary button. I'm seeing page shake her head like or, or nod like yes have you turned over to the dark side tale of tailwind page are you a tailwind <laughs> fan now i i have not actually ah. used tailwind still okay <laughs> it was funny though when you were talking about bootstrap because that is one of the primary libraries that i use for one of the projects at work and it's nice because it's not the bootstrap of your where it was very much jQuery powered. It's, you know, it's bootstrap four or five at this mm. point, and it's much friendlier and I think a little bit easier to to customize. And it's not the bootstrap blue and things out of the box that you might remember from earlier iterations. <laughs> but I can definitely I do find myself using a lot of SAS along with it to achieve different margins or mm. change padding or font font sizes. So I can definitely see where the benefits of something like Tailwind, where you tell it, this is what I want my particular buttons to look like, or this is what I want my drop downs to be to act like. I can see the benefits of that and just have it once. And then wherever you use it, it, it exactly looks like that. So I can yeah. see the benefits of it, even though I've have not used it personally. <laughs> yeah, it's been long. I used Bootstrap, but yeah, <laughs> that was my experience then. <laughs> you know, you can still, I mean, all, all these frameworks, they keep revving them, you know, and then you get different releases and it's a pain. Like, I think Material just went from four to five and it's it's enough of a change where, like, it breaks a lot of code, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, Dylan, you, you, you say you're a developer advocate. So what does that mean? What, you know, what, what does your job look like on a daily basis? As a developer advocate, simply put, my work is to advocate for my company's product and tell them why our, why our product is awesome, why I believe it's awesome. And I do this through creating uh, different forms of content. It could be content fixing um, common solutions, or it could be content showing people that they can actually build this with our product like do you know you can use our product to build that and then i walk them through a tutorial this could be a video it could be an article i walk them through a tutorial showing them how to do something like that or how to add features that our products can provide to their existing applications so and of of course for companies this can be very different like um, in the company i was working previously there were departments that focused more on open source. As an advocate, there were some that focused more on events. And for me, I focused more on articles and did uh, little video creations. So day to day, I'm either working on one article or trying to brainstorm for another use case of our product 
that I can write about. Or sometimes there are also requests from the support team, like from a client was asking if we could do this, if we could do that. And of course we can do that, but then who is going to, you know, show them the process? So I would just take on simple things like that. Or I'm probably working on my next video that I'm going to publish. So it's usually, I think for the most part of it, while I was there, it was around articles, but Mm -hmm. I did few videos also. Sounds very fun. It does. And it's it's kind of cool that you had different teams who were focused on different things, because I think a lot of times for smaller companies, that's something that stretches the developer developer advocacy team pretty thin. They're trying to make conference talks. They're trying to update documentation and write articles. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do projects with their with whatever product they're tasked with focusing on. So it sounds like it was a lot more focused what you got to do, but also it sounds like that would probably produce higher quality content because you really have people in their their niche that they're really, really good at. Yeah, I mean, you can say that, but we didn't really have like a dedicated department for conferences and for open source. It's just mm-hmm. as developer advocates, you can really contribute in different ways. And few of my team members, I think they really enjoyed open source. Like there was almost open source libraries every week. And I was just like, <laughs> how do you do it? <laughs> and then there was also there was also a colleague of mine who really did more of the videos. And I believe he loved videos. And for me, I also love videos, to be honest. But I think I find articles easier. So it's just mostly what are you... In my previous companies, it was like, what are you comfortable with mm-hmm. and how are you going to use what you are comfortable with to really help us advocate? So it's not like we had dedicated, but yeah, that's what it looked like. Because you all you usually find the same people in open source, the same people in videos, the same people in articles, things like that. Yeah, so- I think both Paige and I can attest that like, and agree that it, it, videos are so much harder than just, you know, an article is like, 10% of the word a video is just so much more. You got to do the acting and all that. There's <laughs> editing, recording, editing, editing, stuttering, re-recording. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> all of I that. can get and this then, one sentence pro- out. You know, that'd be great. <laughs> Probably there's also the fake smile when you have when you have <laughs> smiled the original one and then you have to retake it. So you have to smile. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and the fake excitement, like, you know, you kind of get it wrong, like, oh, that was great, oh, blah, 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 and then, like, oh, <laughs> let me try and generate the excitement again, oh, that was great! <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, 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 but, and I gotta tell you, like, I, I mean, just on my, on the side, like, I've been doing an article to go along with videos recently, and it, they definitely cross-promote each other, like, there's a fo- bunch of folks who are in Medium world and in Dev2 world, who they just love that, and then, like, you can kind of get them into your videos and kind of get them back to your right. It's just nice. It's good. Now, I would say definitely, if you're going to spend 100% of the time doing a video, give yourself 110% and make a make an article to go along with it, show some different parts of it, you know, because you yeah. can show different content in there. Yeah, and I think with articles too, you can easily, you can easily fix some part of it. Mm. But then with videos, it's like, it's there, it's there, you either delete it or you leave it. Ah. Right? (laughs) Yes. And one thing that I've learned since writing articles and sometimes doing videos along with them is that you don't necessarily have to have them come out at the same time. You can have one come out and then write the article afterwards, do the record the video after you've written the tutorial, whatever. So it's not like everything has to be all buttoned up and ready to go at the same time. Sometimes you can space it out over a month or two, just depending on, you know, how much time you have and how much bandwidth you have to devote to that kind of thing. That's probably yeah. a good idea, too. Kind of give yourself a little uplift later, you know, sure. so that you're not like, they're not competing against each other. Mm-hmm. So, Dillian, one, one question that I have and probably our listeners have as well is how do you get into a developer advocacy position? Because I know that that's something lots of people have heard of, maybe might be interested in, but don't really know how to get started. So what, what advice would you give? I've also gotten this question um, a lot. <laughs> You get all the questions. (laughs) And where the place I start from is just like I said earlier, different companies have different developer relations efforts. And for some companies, you see them, for some companies, you see them doing more videos. Maybe they have a YouTube audience. 
or a Twitch audience and they believe it's a great way to grow from there and advocate. For some companies, more of their efforts are focused towards open source and for some companies, most of their efforts are articles. So what I usually tell people is you can just pick, like if you want to move into such roles, you can just pick on one major developer advocate skill and improve on it and then you can also maybe have an idea on the other parts but you should have a major so this can be you can pick up videos like okay i want to learn and grow in the video skills because it's still a form of content or you can pick up conferences if that's your thing you can pick up writing you can just pick one of this and have Focus on it as your major. This is my own advice. You can have an idea on the others. So like, for example, me, before I got into my first developer advocate position, I had more uh, focus on my writing and I had fair experience in my videos. I also had very little experience with open source and with also conferences. I think as at the time I had been to just one or two virtual talks before, not even real conferences. So when you pick on one and then you have a fair experience with the others, then you can look for a company that matches your interest. So in company, in developer advocate descriptions, you see you're going to be working on improving our Stack Overflow community, Discord community. Some of them would specify that you're going to focus on our YouTube channel. Some of them would specify that you're going to improve our blog. We don't have so much articles there. So when you have already picked a major skill, then you can look for a company that applies with your interest. So you cannot necessarily really be ready for all developer advocates positions out there because different companies are looking for different ways they want you to relate with their community. So, I mean, you can either pick first, then look for a job, or you can see a job you like and then try to build on that skill. I think for anyone who wants to move into that, of course, the software engineering experience is also there. This can be front-end, back-end, whatever language, whatever framework. But when it comes to the content side of it and how you relate with the community, then you can just pick one or if possible, you can learn all of it. I mean, learning all of it seems like a lot. I agree. <laughs> so I, I think that your advice to choose one particular area of focus that you really enjoy already. And like you said, it could be writing, it could be making videos, whatever it is that really kind of gets you excited or you you would do in your free time, I think is really important. I guess one one thing that I would probably add or ask you to kind of expand on is the fact that you most likely will need to do this outside of your your day job or your regular coding job. Because if I understand correctly, Developer advocates are not hired just for their coding skills a lot of times, like you might be if you were going for a general software engineering position. It's because you already have some sort of a body of work or following on some social media platform or platforms that gives credence to what you're saying you can do for this company. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes, I totally, I totally agree. That was also one of the reasons why I transitioned from front-end to developer advocacy, because as a front-end person, I was just doing code and I enjoyed doing code. But then I also wanted the content and community side of it. So with developer advocacy, it's not just the content. It's not just the code. The code is still there when it comes to building demos or trying to provide solutions. But the addition, which I enjoy, is the content and community part of it. So it's definitely building these skills outside your already coding experience because that has to be there. You cannot relate with a developer if you do not understand code basically. <laughs> and I think the, the coding part of it is fascinating, right? I mean, the cool thing about doing developer advocacy when it comes to these sort of roles is, you know, you're always picking, you know, you're always trying out new things like, oh, wow, we need to integrate with this product. Or we need to integrate with that product. Now you got to go learn that and take a look at all their stuff and see how it integrates and try different ways and see if that's the right way that the way that you want to promote doing it. And it, I think it's, it's really cool. If you, if you enjoy that kind of dig into something and figure something out quickly, like then that 
that would be a great role for you. Yeah, that's just like you said, you are always trying to, okay, because when you're advocating for a product, you usually want to expand, usually want to show people creative ways. You don't just want to say this is how a product is, but you also want to show things like this is how you can add Google authentication to our product. This is how you can add Firebase. This is how you can <laughs> add Twitter. So it's like you're also learning other products about other products learning about other technologies in the process and definitely if you love trying out things new developer advocacy is one good job for that big resume builder yeah totally and it seems just like a really fun way to to learn lots of stuff which i think most software developers in general really enjoy doing so one question that i have that kind of comes out of that is how do you decide what you're going to do next it seems like there's probably a lot of directions that something could go so how do you prioritize, you know, what's the next thing that I'm going to show or build or demo for people? Yeah. So when it comes to that question, it's I think it's really depending on what my what our company is focusing on at that point, maybe at that quarter or at that period. So it could be that there's probably a new feature on one of our front end SDKs and then we want to kind of advocate for it. So there's usually a bunch of ideas like, okay, let's show how to build this. Let's show how to build that. Let's show how to do this. So you basically just pick from these ideas and prioritize which one would really benefit this goal that we want to achieve at this point. It could be that, okay, we at this point, we want more audience on our YouTube. So it's going to be, okay, which of these things can we show on YouTube? We definitely don't want to show something that's very long and very stressful and would take a lot of time. <laughs> so uh, that's really where the Wait whole, a second, there are those 12-hour YouTube videos out there. Yeah. Oh <laughs> so, I mean, it's not even just Watch the 12 those. hours. It's the fact that it takes a long time to even be. So it's like you cannot do any other thing during the process. So prioritizing from these different ideas that they are is really based on what your company is what direction your company is facing at that point and then you find which of them matches i was gonna say by the way you know when you guys are talking about like writing versus videos versus all of that i mean i do think like it's kind of a layered thing like you do need to have that fundamental writing skill because when you when you do a video there is a, a level of scripting that you put into it and you write first if you could do uh so you're always kind of writing. So I think like and that, that that to me is the, like the first thing that you should always do is get is, is improve your writing, get out there, do some medium articles, dev two articles, things like that. And then you can build on top of that with your YouTubing if you want to. Uh, yeah, great. But I think there are just people who also find it easy to talk than to write. So, of course, when it comes to writing, there's definitely that communication I think it's not really the writing itself. It's just how you're able to communicate. So there should be that communication skill. Then you can do videos. Like when I started videos, I felt like there were more things I could say in a minute than what I could write in a minute. So, for example, these, I can make so many examples easily. But if I'm to put that down, it's already getting the article extra long. So, I mean, like when you see a five-minute article, so let me use 10 minutes. When you see a 10 minutes article, it's more, this is my experience, it's more scary than seeing a 10 minutes video. So I think that's for me. Maybe you don't agree, but I think there are just different, there are different uh, ways that people like to share stuff. So you maybe you don't really have to be grounded in writing so much. But as long as you can communicate, you can pick videos if you want. Yeah, I guess I mean, I'm like, when you write something you need to like think about the structure of it first like here's Mm. here's what i'm trying to present let me go make the smallest possible form of it that demonstrates it and then structure like how i'm going to teach it and then Mm -hmm. you know more often than that that turns into like an outline for an article or an outline for a video but yeah right i mean i guess what i mean is that that kind of structuring yeah true Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. 
So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Sorry, when it comes to videos, again, you can also play it on 1.5x. So that ah. is less scary. That is true. <laughs> or yeah, or if you're fast talker, a 0.75x. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think I think it just speaks to the different learning styles that people have. Some people really want to see it in a video. Some people want to read it and then be able to copy the code into, you know, a console and play with it that way. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. it's just really different learning styles, different preferences, because I I'm kind of like Jack, I would prefer to, I think, write it or have come kind of an outline or a script and then use that as my guiding point, whereas other people like you, maybe Dillian, are more free form and just kind of have a general idea. And then it just blossoms from there. <laughs> I like general ideas because I feel <laughs> I I think when it comes to videos, writing script is always fun. But the problem is having to this is what I wrote and then you have to study it and then you have to be able to say it without looking at one direction. Ah. So, <laughs> so like there was this video I made recently where I found it very hard. I had this very long thing I wanted to share and then at the beginning of the video, I just said, if I'm looking at this way, just know I'm looking at my phone because I have everything written <laughs> and it was easier for me. So what I usually do is I just highlight things I would love to talk about. I try so much not to say, not to write it exactly how I want to say it because mm-hmm. that, that can distract me. So I just highlight, okay, at this point, I'll share this, I'll share that. And then I can just use my own words, say it. If I don't say it well, I say it again and then I pick it off from the editor. Exactly. I mean, I think I generally work off of like an outline. You know, these are the the key points I want to hit. And then I sort of riff on that. And as long as you get like a sentence or two, a clean sentence or two of riff that that works, you know, then just that's good. That's the take. But you and if it doesn't work, just do it again. Just do it again a million times. I mean, it's (laughs) it's digital, man. You know, you can always just delete it. Done. Yes. You know, and you find that right take and then you uh then you go back in. You know, then then you go on to the next thing. The next thing. <laughs> I mean it, everybody in YouTube expects like little jump cuts anyway. But as long mm-hmm. as you don't jump cut like right in the middle of when you're talking, you're probably okay. Yeah. 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 And it certainly helps if well, you don't want to put yourself on the screen, that's handy too. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's- screen recordings where you narrate is great. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I found it so helpful because I was trying to do a couple of videos and then I was always thinking about how I always have to be on screen. And then I was like, I mean, if I don't have to appear on screen, right? And then it was just easier. I'm just talking behind and then Mm -hmm. recording my screen and maybe I just show up a few times and that's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then with a lot of these screen editor programs, you can just go and just add in a little, oh, I I didn't say that right. Here, I'll just replace the audio right there. And as long as you're not on screen, that's easy, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, too, because I think I've got my first content and comment just recently where a guy was like, why do people always want to be on screen nowadays? Did you just show us the code? Like, oh, okay, yeah. great. Thanks, man. Like, okay, all right. Makes it easier on me. Sure. That's the audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody's got something to gripe about. Free stuff. What's, what fun right. free stuff? I can't gripe about it. Sorry. A little bit of wind there. <laughs> So continuing on with this kind of, you know, content creation, writing, articles, videos, all that stuff. One of the, the publications that you've been in quite a bit, Dillian, is Free Code Camp. And one of the newer articles that you wrote was about JavaScript string comparison. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and if there are some easier ways, because I know in the past it's not always been the easiest thing to to be able to compare. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I've been on FreeCodeCamp since um, 2020. And on FreeCodeCamp, I get to write about the advanced stuff and even the very simple stuff that people may not even think of. So that was the inspiration behind Compass Strings because, I mean, looking at that, it may feel like who needs this or it may feel like why would I want to copy strings? But I think personally, as a content creator, I also love writing about these things that people may not even think of, even if 
you may not have a professional use case for it. So with string comparisons, it was just the whole idea of how do you compare strings? How do you know which string is in the... I mean, you already know A comes before B and C, <laughs> but how do you determine that in JavaScript? For example, this may be because you want to order the file names or order folder names. And I mean, there is GUI where you can easily right-click and sort, but maybe you're building an application like Google Drive, for example, and then you have to order these things. So how do you get to do that in JavaScript? And in that article, I showed two ways of which the first one was the most effective. So the first one is using the local compare, L-O-C-A-L-E, then compare. And that's a string method. So in all strings in JavaScript, you can apply that method. So you can do string one dot local compare, and then you compare it with another string. And the what makes local compare so special is that it's it doesn't just use English, which is like general. You can also use the different locales for different regions to um, alphabetically order in ascending or in descending order of um, files or of anything based on strings. And then I showed the other method, which is using mathematical operators. Like when you do a string like H is greater than A, it's going to be true because H comes after A. When you do H is less than A, it's going to be false. When you do H is equal to A, it's going to be um, false because H is not equal to A. But the thing with mat mathematical operators when I was experimenting with it was it wasn't effective because when you say H is equal to A, it is false. When you say H is less than A, it is also false. So yeah. you are not exactly sure what that <laughs> which, false. Which way is it false? <laughs> yeah, you're not exactly sure what that false means, but with local yeah. compare, you get values like minus one, which shows, okay, this is greater than. You get zero, which shows this is equal. You get one, which shows that this is greater than. So I showed two ways there, but the most effective one is local compare. And I mean, there are different use cases for it. You may never know. I haven't built an application before where I had to apply a sorting feature, but when you have to, how do you achieve this in JavaScript? So... I think that's just things you can do with such an article on string comparisons. I mean, that's great. That's a method that I've never heard of before. So it's definitely something that I will keep in mind for the future because I have I I think everybody who writes JavaScript in they they'll encounter these scenarios where they need to sort vast arrays of data and it can be by dates, it can be by names, it can be by both. I just recently or not that long ago learned that trusting that strings of numbers are going to sort the way you think they are is not true. <laughs> and I ended up having to, I think, convert the strings of numbers into actual ints to get them to sort correctly. But mm -hmm. I mean, I've probably introduced some bugs into code because I had no idea that that was not what JavaScript was doing under the hood. <laughs> Yes. So being aware of things that you can use to help you do that and feel confident that they're going to work the way that you expect them to is really good. Oh, yeah. That's really why I like writing on these tiny pieces, because you never know you need them until you need them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I got an interview question the last time I was doing interview rounds where it was like sort through this list of names and phone numbers and then sort by this or you know, sort by name something like that. And then being able to say, hey, I use locale compare and being able to say what the differences are between that and a, and a regular compare. I mean, that's definitely, oh, look at you. You know what you're talking about, you know? Yes. <laughs> Although I have no idea, like when you're running in Node, like if you're running in Node, I guess your locale is defined, I don't know, by your OS or something at that point. You're, in the browser, locale is defined by whatever your locale settings are. And you can set them to US English or whatever you have. I think yeah. there's some... Uh, Oftentimes, I think it also has options where you can specify a specific right. locale. So yeah, yen, US, or all that. Yeah, internationalization is a huge. Wow, I remember when I was working over at Nike, we had a whole team whose job it was, and it was not a small team whose job it was to do internationalization and make the tools and all the translation stuff and all of that. It was a big deal. Yeah. So one question that I had for you is when you're pitching to Free Code Camp or other, you know, article, de developer article places that you might be writing for, 
is it generally that you pitch them ideas or they say we're looking for people to write about these already defined ideas? Currently, the publications that I write for, they give me options to choose from, which, to be honest, is easier because pitching <laughs> can usually be had. I mean, with Free Code Camp, pitching isn't um, difficult because on Free Code Camp, they believe that we all have different ways of expressing ourselves. So it doesn't have to be the only article on the internet. It could be something that has possibly been written before. Mm -hmm. But in the past, when I used to write for some publications, I had to pitch. And then pitching involved so much research. And even if it has been written on before, I have to pitch it in a way and convince them that, yes, this has been written before, but then I have more information to share in my own piece. So it was difficult because sometimes I pitch three articles or even four ideas and only one is picked, sometimes none. And they're like, you know, the person would literally go on Google, type the same article and be like, these are the results for this. There is so much already. This is that. This is this. So what is new in your own article? Sometimes it's easy to convince them. Sometimes it's hard to convince them. But recently, I mean, I don't even write for so many publications anymore. So with my full-time role, there are so many things I couldn't do externally anymore. But with Free Code Camp, they give me a list of ideas. I also have the flexibility to write on what I want. And I think I only write for Free Code Camp publicly currently. Mm. And my personal blog where I get to write whatever I like. So, Sure. And is that when you write for Free Code Camp? I mean, you don't get paid for that, do you? With Free Code Camp, initially I wasn't paid, but I recently had a, I'll call it a part-time part agreement with them. Oh. So it's not really part-time and it's not really free, somewhere in between. Oh, I'll okay. still call it, it part-time anyways, but I get rewarded for the articles that I share on there. But before it used to be free. Hmm. Nice. Okay. I Free code camp, I guess, make some money somewhere. I, I think they, I think they get like big sponsorships and stuff. And I think, yeah. And also, you know, I think their YouTube channel generates some revenue and stuff. Not, you know, it's got like four point five million subscribers. Last time I looked, it's crazy. I mean, they're the ones that have the seventeen hour in depth, you know, uh, SQL, learn it from right, right. front to back. So, <laughs> yeah. They're the I, I, ones pumping out those ridiculously big tutorials. <laughs> yeah, the one time I pitched something to them, they were like, minimum 90 minutes. And man, does that take, Whoa. I mean, wow. wow. Yeah, for a That's video. A and I, yeah, video. Yeah, I actually did it. I, I got to 90 minutes, but it was like just barely. And it, it took <laughs> me like, my videos, it takes, it's easily three times longer to, to make the video and then edit it down to the, the, the you yeah. know, so I was sweating it. Man, when I had like, you know, two hours of video, I was like, oh, is this going to make, I don't know, is this going to make the cut? Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> Should I leave in that stumble in there? Because I need the time. <laughs> and then, oh my God, it takes forever to encode that stuff. It's just, just I can't even imagine making a 17 hour video. It's just crazy. Like, I think you also get to a point where you just want to finish. Maybe yeah. From, from the start, you were enthusiastic and all but then it gets to the point where you're just like i just want to get this done yeah this. is anybody still watching this if you're still watching this email this address <laughs> dm this address and tell me because i don't think anybody watches this far <laughs> I'll send but that's you five cool bucks. i mean free code camp is a, a great a great resource and i think that what they're doing is awesome so, you know, kudos to them and to everybody who contributes mm, to them because it's really, I think, helped a whole, you know, generations of developers who are coming up. Yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> Very much so. So one of the other topics that you had told us about that we wanted to discuss before this episode started was debouncing in JavaScript. And it's something that I've come across. I've probably used it maybe without knowing it, but maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit and tell our users, you know, what it is, what it's good for. How how would you recommend going about that? Uh, debouncing in JavaScript is also something I've had a lot, but I haven't used it. I think I had an idea of what it does, but one day I just made my research and I was like, okay, what exactly is this debouncing? So I think debouncing is... I mean, there are different ways you can go about it. But the article I shared, the, the bouncing is just a way to reduce unnecessary um, function calls 
or should I say reduce unnecessary expression executions. And this can be useful because we create a lot of functions. This is not even just JavaScript. In different applications, there's so many functions, a function to search this, a function that will be called when a user types this, a function that will be called when this happens, when a user logs in and different things. But then there are some times where a function is just called too many times and that's unnecessary. And a very common use case where you find the bouncing is in a search input that searches for things related to the things that you type. So let's you have some search inputs where you search, you press enter, and then you get your result. In that case, the function that searches is called just once when you press enter. But there are other platforms where as you're searching, you are seeing the results, maybe in the modal or in a pop-up or below the search. So in such cases, this is where the bouncing can be useful. So Let's say a user wants to search for React. When the user types R, I mean, without the bouncing, when the user types R, you call the function. When the user types E, you call the function. It brings so many results with R, E. When the user types A, it brings so many C, C. So the user wants to type React, but on typing React, even as fast as they can, you end up calling that function five times. Mm -hmm. So with the bouncing, the approach here is... You want to give the user a waiting time. So you want to ensure that the user is not like consistently typing and then you are still calling the function. So if they are typing React, for example, if they type it like R-E-A-C-T as fast as that, you call the function just once when they type T. If it's something, because of course the computer doesn't know that it's React, the user wants to type. So that's where the concept of a waiting time comes in. So if the user wants to type React and they type maybe R-E-A, and maybe they wait for 500 milliseconds or one second, then you can call that function to, to search for things that are related to R-E-A. And when the user completes it with CT, then you call the function again. So you call the function two times because the user waited for some seconds in between. So the bouncing is just a way to reduce function calls, especially functions that are unnecessary to call at some certain point. Because if a user is typing React and you're calling this function on each later, there is really no point for that. So yeah, that's the concept of the bouncing. And of course, there are libraries that already do this for you. I think one popular one is Lodash. Lodash mm -hmm. has this debouncing method. You just use the debouncing method, pass your function, pass maybe the seconds, the waiting time seconds, and it runs it for you. But I mean, at the end of the article, I also specify you don't have to build yours, but I just wanted to show the idea of debouncing and building your own debouncing um, function. So mm -hmm. that's just the yeah, idea. Yeah, that's always a good thing to know. I mean, you know, sure. how, to, how to actually do it. I would recommend actually like no more than like 200 milliseconds though. Because at 200 milliseconds, UI starts to feel sluggish to a user or customer. I should, I don't want to say. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 200 milliseconds is usually about the right time. Otherwise, they're like, wait a second. I did type something. Oh, wait. Oh, it happened. You know, that's the second thing. Yeah. I think it's also something, the, the major reason why you should even debounce is not just the whole function call thing, but then it can affect user experience. So, yeah. Like, imagine making five API calls because somebody's typing React and then the browser has to wait for that response. You have to catch all the promises. So it's just easier and it improves the experience when the function is just called smoothly. Big time. Good stuff. <laughs> so if you were to implement this in your own application, Dillian, would you recommend using somebody else's library? If so, for example, Lodash, if I already have installed Lodash and I've used it for other things, then I'm just going to plug it in there. But if I haven't installed Lodash yet, then I'll just create my utility function and do my debouncing. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, Lodash definitely is a great repository of, of good stuff. Although nowadays, there are a few things that are still stuck in Lodash that like when that ES6, you know, you don't need to do like for each from Lodash, you know, or, or bring in their map, right? <laughs> yeah, or includes or any of that. And so there's a bunch of stuff that like, nice thing about Lodash, I, I think you can tree shake it down to just the ones that you actually do use. I think that yeah. you can. And it feels like Lodash has been the the impetus for all of these functions that we're now getting built into the native JavaScript ES mm -hmm. uh, syntax, which is great because it is it is so useful. And it's still a library that I reach for when I need to get those 
you know, more fiddly methods that are a little bit less that are still not built in. <laughs> group by. That's, that's true. Yes. I end up using group by all the time. That's true. Yeah. Or, or chunk. Chunk's another one where it breaks <laughs> up an array into like chunk sizes. That's always a handy one. Yeah. Nice. Well, Dillian, it is, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to talk about? Well, I think I would love to use this opportunity to talk about my Instagram account. Mm. <laughs> At the beginning of the year, I I have been doing technical content on my my blog, other publications, and on YouTube. And I just felt this need to also do it on Instagram. I think one thing with me is I love just creating content around I just have this whole dream to have my content all around the world. So if this means different platforms, then yes, it should get all around. So I created my Instagram tech account. And as at the time when I started, I didn't have a clear direction. I felt, okay, when I post a YouTube video, I'll just post a snippet of it on Instagram and add a link. Or when I write an article. But then Instagram also wasn't very good with links. Yeah, no. Instagram, it's... It turns it to text. The only place suitable for links is on your bio, which is just the website field or on the story. So when you add a story, you can add a link. So it wasn't a good experience because people couldn't easily navigate to the full content. So after some time, I was still trying to like find a direction. I was like, okay, I'm just going to be explaining technical concepts on Instagram. And I, I explained this in different slides. And I've been doing this almost every day for the last three months. And it's been going really great. At first, I wasn't really seeing so much growth. I wasn't getting so much audience. Then I did few advertisements and then people could see my content. And then I started reposting some of the content I already did earlier. And I think from there, I've just been growing an audience. And I think I can also share the accounts, right? Yeah, sure. sure. So I'll paste it in the chats. And yeah, it's been going great ever since. My content has also been helping. Like there are so many people who feel like, oh, I didn't even know this in JavaScript. I also shared the debouncing one and like, oh, this exists. So it's really nice. Of course, it's overwhelming that I have to be consistent with it, that I have to go on Figma, create different slides, create different <laughs> designs, write text, fix margins, have everything fit the screen, and then go through the publishing process every single day. But it's also fulfilling when people learn from it. So I yeah. think that's just one thing I want to add. You should uh, put in some Netherlands stuff too. What it's like to you know, live in Netherlands and all that. You know, be cool. Mm-hmm. I have this problem of really finding the right space for things because <laughs> like on there, it's I've grown this audience. I expect technical content. So when they start seeing things about Netherlands and life in Netherlands, it's almost like this yeah, isn't. Uh, I know what you mean. But, you know, you're, you're building a persona. Every once right? in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Just throw, you know, throw it in there. Hey, look. You know, oh, going to a coffee shop. There's that. There's that. I can also include it. With the yes. boats. Everybody wants to see now. Isn't that the thing? The canals and the boats and stuff. Bicycles. You know? yeah. Street bikes. All oh, right. Yeah, exactly. The bicycles. <laughs> well, I think that's an awesome thing to take on. Instagram is full of people posting like aspirational videos at their desks and like their awesome developer setups. Oh, yeah. But the fact that you're actually putting out good content and things that teach people, I think is admirable. <laughs> Thank you. It's not a place and, I think about a tech stuff, but sure. Go for it. <laughs> well, I think that that's a perfect segue actually into our next portion of the show, which we call Picks. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So these are things that you could be using. You could be watching, reading, just things that we like that we think you, our audience, may also like as well. So, Jack, would you like to kick us off this week with a pick? Sure. I'll do two because I think we forgot one up up front, which was to talk about our Discord server. And so I'll pick our Discord (laughs) server channel. There's a link to it in the description and show notes. And, uh... Jump on there and tell us how you think we're doing. And uh, if you like the show, if you think there are topics we should cover, that'd be great. And then uh, let's see, for my real pick, 
I'll do. Uh, I may. I don't know if I talked about this or not, but I got an uni pizza oven, and Ooh. oh my god, it's good. Oh, it's crazy good. It's yeah. In fact, you know, we've done pizza over the years. You know, tried all kinds of things. You know, like deep dish in, a, in an oven, and then I think we had like a grill. We have a grill attachment, and the problem is there you can't really control the temperature all that well. But it does get up to like pizza making temperatures. Anyway, the uni is amazing. You can like literally just fire it up, and then like it gets to, like seven hundred degrees, and you just throw in a pizza, and like two minutes later it's done. And it, I mean, the great recipes we did like like year crust pizza recently, and it was just like, mm. that's so yeah, good. uni o o n i pizza oven. If you want to get that whole summer, make some pizza with some friends outside <laughs> kind of thing, it's good, really good. Nice, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> So I will go next. My pick for this week actually is going to piggyback off of Jack's and it'll be another cooking related pick. Mm. It will be uh, an a instant read thermometer. Oh, um, yes. I Yeah, I got one of these probably, I don't know, maybe six months ago or so, but hadn't really used it. But I have found so many uses for it recently with between my husband grilling a lot outside and because it's summer here in the U.S., I've gotten more into baking recently and bringing stuff up to like the exact right temperature sometimes is really critical. So having this guy that you just pop in and really quickly it tells you exactly where you are has been super helpful. And, you know, it's easily available on Amazon, really inexpensive thing to invest in. And it has been such a good good investment. So I would definitely recommend that if you're cooking, grilling, baking, candy making, any of that stuff. Um, and you're doing like the digital one with like the flip out thing. Yep. Yeah, that yeah, mo- so much better is instant read. That's what you want. You don't want the other one because the other ones it takes forever. You know, like it it, you know, get up the temperature and then, yeah, <laughs> if, like if you're cooking chicken, you want to make sure the chicken's one one sixty five, you know, for breast <laughs> meat. and if you don't, I mean, you can get you know, salmonella. You don't want that. So, yeah, <laughs> right. so good. Yeah. Put that in there. And, you, know, you know, it's a good, <laughs> good, tender, <laughs> moist, succulent, but also safe piece of chicken. <laughs> All right. Dillian, do you have something that you would pick for our listeners? Oh, yes. I recently got an air fryer. Ooh, and we're all doing it's food. Been, it's it's been a nice purchase. I mean, I've had people talk about how air fryer is like the best thing to ever happen to the world. And I think I've probably <laughs> not yet gotten to that feeling of this is the best thing. There was the wheel but, and then there was air fryers. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but I think it's, I found it really so nice because now I can fry uh, some of my food stuff and I don't have to keep checking, like checking the oil, trying to stir. I just put it there, set the time. It's ready. I check if it's not enough. I set another time. I just sit back and watch. So, <laughs> yeah, the air fryer has been nice. I tried it on chicken. It was okay. nice. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I I don't know if it's today or tomorrow, but I want to try it on fries. I got this slice. Fries fry are great. Yes. Fries in an air fryer. That is the bomb. <laughs> So I want to try it. I want to see it. Although I feel like I am losing the oil part of it. Even though it's healthy, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm losing the oil part of it. And mm, yeah, just a little trade. <laughs> that's what we for... got. But the chicken tasted like, wow, that's vanilla chicken. That is like chicken <laughs> that you haven't done anything to. Whereas the <laughs> fries, the fries were like crisp, crispy, crunchy. And you're like, ooh, that's ah, a good nice. fry. Yeah. So I should try it today or yeah. tomorrow and see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicken. Well, that's yeah. awesome. I mean, that I've heard a lot of people say really good things about air fryers, so I might have to try it out one one of these days. <laughs> My recommendation, if, you, if you're going to get one, get like a combo. Like there's a bunch of uh, you know, ovens out there that are like, they're a toast oven, toaster oven plus air fryer, mm. right? So even if you mm. don't dig the air fryer, like vibe, like I still got a toaster oven. You can still do other oven. stuff. <laughs> still other stuff, right? Whereas <laughs> if you get like a, a dedicated air fryer, then you're like, oh, I didn't like it. <laughs> that's it i guess i guess and, and that's what we got like but we didn't dig it we we're like okay, well we don't need like a take up this much space in the in the kitchen for just fries yeah you know? so yeah <laughs> good tip right well that's awesome <laughs> thank you <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today dillian absolutely it, it was been a pleasure it was nice it was nice being here and the whole discussion was also great yeah <laughs> thank you so much awesome well we will see, see you next, week. next time on the next episode of react right. roundup bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit dot com to learn more